I believe that Jesus does welcome LGBTQ people. Hello and welcome to Brookings First United Methodist Church's new podcast, Conversations with Pastor Pete. I am Pastor Pete. This season will take you through my discussions on LGBTQ issues in the Bible. While some Christians believe that people who are not heterosexual are condemned by God, this is not the only Christian view. I will show how Jesus followers can include the LGBTQ community. I welcome your questions. You can email us at prayer at brookingsmethodist.org or send them in on our Facebook page at Brookings First United Methodist Church. This is intended to offer another view to the standard view that has condemned LGBTQ people um, out of hand. I invite you to participate. God bless. So good evening everybody and welcome. This, this is really a shot in the dark. Um, when I first arrived here, I was requested by the church admin council 18 months ago to run some sessions on the Methodist church and the place we stand with the LGBTQ community. And then COVID happened and everything shut down and it just got confusing and messy. Um, there is a larger context because the United Methodist Church has been debating our welcome to the LGBTQ community. Um, and because of COVID, the general conference of the United Methodist Church has been postponed twice and will now happen in 2022. Um, and it has become an issue that's literally divided the church down the middle, caused lots of pain and, and sadness and anger and bitterness, um, so much so that there is now a group calling themselves the Global Methodist Church who are planning to split off from the United Methodist Church and form a new church um, and have been holding various meetings about how to form this new, new denomination. Um, Nancy and I were at our recent Dakotas conference and some of the discussion happened there. And certainly myself and the delegates who came back from the Dakotas conference were clear that we belonged to the United Methodist Church and we were not going to be putting effort into taking this church into a division because these are our roots and we're not going to try and sell other roots. But I do owe it to you, I think, to initiate a discussion and so have planned for three weeks. I'm hoping to keep it to an hour. Um, I don't know about you guys, but after an hour, your levels of concentration drop off anyway. Um, 
I do understand each week might overlap from the previous week, and that's okay. I'm also okay with the idea that you get opportunity to go home and think and come back next week and have more questions. Sometimes we think better after an event than during an event. I have made a, a kind of a, a pre-comment that says I do not want this to be contentious or a place where we fight with each other. Um, I've seen that happen in other parts of the life of the church. I am seeing this as information. Um, I have a, a script that I'll work from. You can take it home and you can read it through each week and come back at me as well. Um, also to declare myself, because I'm a pastor accredited in the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. That is a separate conference. So the United Methodist Church has accepted my credentials into this conference, but I spent 40 years within the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, which is a conference that accepts LGBTQ people as members, as leaders, and has ordained that community. Um, <clears throat> so, so sometimes when the debate happens in the United Methodist Church, it appears like the whole world is talking about this, it's not true. It's a discussion happening in the UMC. The British Methodist Church, the conference of the Methodist, British Methodist Church, has accepted LGBTQ people fully in every way. So there are other conferences around the world that have other views. I understand this to be a divisive conversation within this general conference. And sometimes this topic gets presented in a way that assumes there's only one view. And anyone who sees it differently somehow has lost their faith in Jesus. So I would like to present a view to you that might help you to understand that there is a broader discussion happening. You probably are quite familiar with the line that says LGBTQ people are sinful and, and must repent of their sin in order to be accepted in the church because that's a fairly widely publicized view. Um, that is not the only view held in the Christian church. And so I thought it helpful just to try and walk you through some other views that you may or may not have encountered. Um, so welcome. I am going to invite us to pray together before we go any further. Lord God, we pray that your spirit guide our discussion. Enable us to be people who continue to grow under the prompting of your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so I have a three-week conversation. This week I want I want to look at the Bible and just ask a little about how we understand the Bible. Next week, I will point out six major texts that have been used to condemn gay people. And then the following week, I'll talk a bit about the journey of the United Methodist Church and the fact that it's entirely possible for us to change our minds and still be led by the Spirit. For myself... I need to declare up front that I love the Bible. I have 
grown up with Bible stories being told to be me by my parents. I got my first Bible at seven years old. Maybe you guys got one of those too with pictures in it. And I still have it. Um, it's a kind of treasured memory. Um, I have many more Bibles now. Um, I have a whole lot of English translations. I have a whole lot of other language translations. I have a Greek Bible. I have a Hebrew Bible. I have a Latin Bible. Because I have fallen in love with the Scriptures to the point that I've learned to read the Scriptures in their original languages. I have also... Um, spend time trying to understand the Bible in its original context, trying to understand the cultures that surround the Bible and the various people who've been involved in, in the stories of the Bible. Um, but that said, I would be the first to say I don't know everything I'm still learning. Please, I'd hate to be standing up here like I know it all, because I don't. I'd rather make that disclaimer now um, I'm really open to continuing to learn. But the one key theme that runs throughout the Bible is this, this two-sided commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. For me, that's the thread. That's the key that holds it together. And, and you're going to hear me over and over again encouraging us to be loving to be compassionate, to be kind. I am not willing to budge from that one principle. Over the years, I've discovered that the Bible can be read in many different ways. I have discovered there's a literal reading of the text. I have discovered other ways to engage the text. I've discovered Lectio Divina, which is a way of praying over a text and allowing a text to speak to you under the guidance of the Spirit. I have discovered reading Scripture to understand more about the people and the times they lived in. And I have encountered Scripture as beautiful literature and amazing poetry. But the challenge really lies with the way the Bible is read. And just to give us a little bit of background, the Protestant Reformation changed everything. Before the Reformation, which was in the 1500s, before the Reformation, the Bible was largely read in Latin by priests to a congregation who themselves did not have copies because the Bible was written by hand. Who themselves didn't have copies because the Bible wasn't a printed whole in the way you and I encounter it today. Often people would have sections of scripture depending on what you could lay your hands on because these handwritten Bibles were extremely valuable. And so people would go to church would have scripture read to them in Latin, which most often was not their home language anymore, and would rely on a priest to explain what was going on. The dilemma, of course, being that you had to rely on an interpretation either given to you by the church, 
or given to you by a particular priest, and you could be none the wiser because you had no way of reading the text itself. Yes, of course, people memorize sections of Scripture, um, but the, the Reformation changed everything. Changed everything in two ways. Um, the cry of the Reformers was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Let us have access to the Bible and not to the interpretations that people have added to it. Let us be able to read the text ourselves and make sense of it ourselves and not have somebody else tell us what it means. And therefore, to do that, let us read the Bible in our own language. And so you have John Wycliffe in England who translated the Bible into English in 1382. You have Martin Luther who translated the Bible into German in the 1500s. Um, and the possibility of hearing the Bible in a way that you could understand it. Alongside another great revolution, which was the invention of printing. The Gutenberg Bible, printed in Mainz in 1455, unlocked everything. Because suddenly there was the possibility that you could have your own copy of the Bible printed in your own language that you could begin to understand. It's very hard for us to even imagine what a great revolution this was in reading Scripture. And so the idea of solar scripture comes to life, that I can read scripture. But the dilemma is that just because you can read the Bible in your own language, oh yeah, thanks, Sam. Solar scripture defined... Um, scripture alone is, the is authoritative for the faith and the practice of the Christian. The Bible is complete, authoritative, and true. Using a quote from 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I only need the Bible in order to follow Jesus. Of course there's a dilemma with this. As much as we need to be fearful of the church or particular preachers placing interpretation on a scripture that I can't even read, just because I can read the scripture doesn't mean that I actually understand what is going on. I need to remember that the Bible... consists of 66 different books written by more than 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. 
which means many different cultures, different languages, and different ways of expression. It's really hard because I can open the Bible and I can read it in my language. I assume I understand what's going on. That's not necessarily true. I still need research skill. I still need tools to help me unpack what is going on. And often I can forget that I'm sitting in 2021 reading documents that are over 5,000 years old in a completely different history and a completely different culture. That gap is hard to bridge when I'm reading this and making sense of this in the 21st century. And so sola scriptura, doing stuff that's in the Bible, is particularly hard because nobody does everything that's in the Bible. I give you a verse at random. Leviticus 19 verse 19. There is an instruction that begins, you are to keep my statutes. Three things you may not do. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle. Secondly, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Thirdly, you shall not wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. I'm using this as an illustration. It's really difficult if somebody says to you, well, I just believe what's in the Bible. Because quite frankly, no one does everything that's in the Bible. All of us have ways of picking and choosing what works for us and what doesn't. And I hate to say all of you have already done that because you should already be looking at the label of your garment and asking, is this a mixture of cotton and polyester? You better take it off right now. Because the Bible says you may not do it. Or if you're a farmer, you should be thinking, hey, what did I plant this season? And those who work with cows need to be asking, what did I do with my cow? You, you hear where I'm going? There are instructions in the Bible that might have made sense at the time that they were first written that don't make sense in our lives now and we have already begun to exercise that kind of choice. We've already begun to filter out some things that work and other things that don't work. And that's the dilemma. That's the place that has landed us up in different churches with different interpretations of Scripture. Different churches that do things differently because they encounter texts in the Bible and they choose to understand them in particular ways. For the sake of our discussion today, and I have a place that I'm heading to, for the sake of our discussion today, I am going to suggest there are some texts in the Bible about human sexuality that you and I no longer obey. We might not even know that they are there, but we have chosen to filter them out. And we need to ask how we do that. How do we choose to filter some things out? Because that choosing is really important. 
I will walk us through some of them. Um, and you might not even know they exist. You might never have heard a sermon preached on it. But I am wanting to talk about the difficulty of, of saying, I obey everything in the Bible, because the fact is we don't. I acknowledge a Methodist Bible teacher by the name of Walter Wink. In the next bit that I do, you will get it, you'll be able to take it home with you. But Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 to 21, tell us that if a bride is found not to be a virgin, she shall be stoned to death. It's unambiguous, it's in the Bible. By the way, male virginity is never mentioned. It's only female virginity. And they would have aunties in the community who would check. And if you were found not to be a virgin, the community was entitled to stone you to death. I do need to point out to us that the only places where brides are stoned today who are found not to be virgins or places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. I don't know when last we stoned someone in Brookings for not being a virgin. I know I'm making light of it, but you hear my point. We have filtered a piece of scripture out. I, I mean, I'm going to tell you up front, as a pastor, I would never, I would, I would never want to use this text when I'm preparing a couple for marriage. And I certainly know the family would fire me on the spot if I were to try and use this text. But you hear my point. We have begun to filter out some explicit instructions in Scripture. And we need to ask how we do that. Let me try a second one. The whole of the Old Testament and a great deal into the New Testament accepts polygamy as a normal state of marriage. Either a man has many wives or a man has a wife and some concubines. And all the great leaders in the Old Testament had more than one wife. And at no point is there any condemnation from God saying, you are wrong, you should not do this. No prophet ever went to Abram, Isaac, or Jacob and condemned them for having more than one wife. No prophet of God went to David or to Solomon and condemned them for having more than one wife. The idols that get upheld as leaders of the faith. Some people do talk to talk about Jesus in Mark 10, quoting a Genesis passage where Jesus says, a man and a woman shall come together and they shall be one flesh. But let's be clear, that passage doesn't imply that that man only needed to have one wife in order to be one flesh with a woman. Jesus is not teaching about monogamy Jesus lived in a culture that practiced polygamy, and there's no sermon from Jesus saying, you shouldn't get married 
to more than one wife. It's amazing how this passage only speaks of more than one wife. Never allows women to have more than one husband. I see the horrified look on your faces, ladies. One was bad enough. <laughs> so we, we ignore that practice. Somehow, I am not being asked to marry. In fact, the law of this land wouldn't allow me to do that. Um, I did find it interesting reading up a little on Mormon history because the Mormons were persecuted for marrying more than one wife. But they were literally persecuted by the law of the land. There was no scripture that could... A, a country that said, we practice freedom of religion, said to the Mormons, but you can't practice that bit of your religion. Because we don't like it. Makes us uncomfortable. Um, there's a form of polygamy called leveret marriage, which is quite clear in the Bible. It says that if a woman's husband dies, she needs to marry the husband's brother. Or the husband's brother has an obligation to marry her so that she's protected and her property is protected. And if she has no children, the husband's brother has a duty to make sure that she has children. In fact, it goes further and says, and if the husband's brother dies, then she must marry the next brother. It's legally in Scripture, none of us practice that. And I can hear, I saw the horror. Your husband's brother? <laughs> no, not going to happen. <laughs> okay. Deuteronomy 22.22 says, The punishment for adultery is death by stoning. So should I be hanging around the law court here when divorce happens because of adultery and encouraging the community to stone the adulterers? It's in the Scripture. We stone people for adultery. Why aren't we practicing it? Because we've chosen to filter that out. Uh, we, we, we are no longer making that a platform. And I, as a pastor, could not possibly entice this congregation to cross the road to the law court to go and stone some adulterers. And maybe you would feel like doing it, but you know you wouldn't do it. Um, and... And somehow adultery has become something that we can forgive and we welcome people back into the community and we restore them. Um, people have got divorced for adultery and have found a new start in life. I, I don't want to belabor the point too much. Um, there are other things that I could add to this um, for example, Jesus is quite clear that you shall not get divorced. He doesn't mince his words. He says divorce is wrong. Do not do it. Moses allows divorce, but Jesus doesn't. Um, but we as a church, 
have a large space for people who are divorced. I'll come back to it. Um, I'm just saying the Bible's unambiguous about it. I think where I'm going, there's a whole bunch of stuff in Scripture that we have chosen to filter out. We've figured how to live in the 21st century faithfully before God. Um, and yet somehow when it comes to the LGBT community, we find these six texts in the Bible and we say they're non-negotiable. It's in the Bible. We have to. It's, it's what God says. And our dilemma says we so easily manage to shove all these other ones aside. Why do we decide that these six are non-negotiable? That's our dilemma. What is the thing that drives us to say there's six texts that we cannot ignore because it's in the Bible, but we manage to ignore a whole bunch of other texts about sexuality and about relationship, um, and we say, it's okay, we don't do that stuff anymore. And the question we have to unpack really asks how we make that decision, how we arrive at a place that we can choose to condemn some people, but when it comes to adulterers, it's okay. We can, we can let that one go. Or, or when it comes to polygamy, no, we're not going to practice that one anymore. Um, when it comes to one husband with lots of wives, well, I mean, all of us know that's a disaster anyway. Um, I will unpack a little later um, the most difficult argument of all. The Bible supports slavery, unequivocally allows slavery. We'll do it in two weeks' time. The biggest debate in this country when it came to the emancipation of slavery were Christians who pulled out Bible texts saying, I'm allowed to have slaves. The Bible gives me permission to have slaves. There's very little biblical argument against slavery. Very little. There's huge chunks of the Bible that permit slavery. There are all sorts of rules about how you should treat your slaves. There's no commandment that slavery is against the will of God. And yet, and yet I can't think of any of us saying slavery is a good thing. None of us would want to be somebody else's slave. So, so the title I gave tonight, the place that I invited us to go to, um, says, not everything in the Bible is Christian. Not everything in the Bible is good. Some of what's in the Bible, we have grown past. If we can understand Scripture as, a, as an unfolding revelation of God, a growing realization of who God is, and capacity for people to say, it is possible that at that time we viewed something like this, but we have grown further in our understanding of God. It's really a problem of ultimate authority. Um, 
And I want to put before us a text, Romans 10, verse 4. Paul gives us a key to unlock how we approach Scripture. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If I can offer us a tool, a tool to read Scripture that says, I will read the Bible through the teaching and the life of Jesus. Not everything in the Bible is Christian. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible that Jesus disagrees with. And so if I am a follower of Jesus, my touchstone, the one who I follow, the one who I love passionately is Jesus. I call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Then I must familiarize myself with everything that Jesus did and said and taught. And that becomes the lens that enables me to read the rest of Scripture. I hope I didn't lose you on that one. The, the, the difficulty when people come to me and say, but the Bible says, my response would be, but what does Jesus say? Because the Bible says many things, and quite frankly, I've seen people take texts out the Bible to agree with anything that they want to believe, and there's been some awful stuff. I grew up, I grew up in a country in South Africa that used passages from the Bible to justify apartheid. And we had Dutch Reformed ministers preaching from the pulpit using chunks of the Bible to justify why white people were superior over black people and why we needed this system of segregation. It was the will of God because when the children of Noah came out of the ark, Ham was made the servant of the other two and Ham was clearly black and therefore black people must be the servants of all other people. It's in the Bible. That is what I grew up with. It took a long time before I heard somebody say, but what would Jesus say? How would Jesus, how would Jesus speak about this teaching? It might be in the Bible, but Jesus would say, all people are God's beloved. God doesn't rank some above others. The core to the teaching of Jesus, in fact, for me, the core to the whole of Scripture Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if there are any texts of the Bible that we use for hateful purposes, I think Jesus would say, where's the love? Where's the love in what you are teaching or doing or saying? I said a mouthful, didn't I? Um, I, I wanted some space for some feedback. I, I was going to have some input, have some questions, give you something to take home. We can continue the discussion next week. I suspect your concentration is kind of done enough. But comment, come back to me. 
I, I do not want to be kind of talking from on high here. I have put something on the table. Tell me where I lost you. Tell me where I didn't make sense. Okay, so the Methodist Church is a global movement, but there are many different branches, conferences. The United Methodist Church, that this church is part of, um, originated in the United States, but has sent missionaries into Africa, into Asia, into parts of Europe. So it has a global conference every four years where representatives from those different parts come together. But it is only one Methodist church. There are other Methodist conferences as well. So the, the church, the Methodist Church of Great Britain, is its own conference. The Methodist Church of Southern Africa is its own independent conference. The Methodist churches in Australia and New Zealand have formed uniting churches with other with other churches. Our relationship as Methodist churches around the globe finds itself in the World Methodist Council, which is a council where all these different conferences can meet and can relate to each other. But the different conferences are independent. Are all the different conferences all together in the Methodist Church? No. No. They, so I come from an entirely independent conference. I have never engaged the United Methodist people, the wonderful United Methodist people. Um, but I have met them at the World, I went, the World Methodist Council was held in Durban in South Africa about 10 years ago, and I did meet United Methodist people there. And I have worked with United Methodist missionaries in South Africa. So we're part of a global family own our origin to John Wesley and over the next couple of weeks you'll hear me hammering on about John Wesley. <laughs> For me, I wouldn't say I've lost anywhere in what you're saying, but just to hear that Jesus does agree with everything in there and that not everything in the Bible is Christian and not everything in there is Jewish. It's a shock. Very hard, isn't it? Yes. Of course. I, I grew up in the same way, assuming that everything in the Bible was Jesus. And so, I mean, a simple example. We are told, God says to the children of Israel, when they, when they cross the River Jordan into the land of Canaan, um, and they come across the first city that they must defeat, that they have God's permission to annihilate everyone in the city. Clear. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. So clearly Jesus, Jesus says, no, I don't think we should be taking, taking everyone out just because this city has opposed it. It's a dreadful passage where it even says, take the babies by their heels and knock their heads against rocks. I think I hear Jesus saying, no, that's not... The, that's what I mean about 
there are some passages we can read and say, I wonder what Jesus would have said about this. And is it possible? Is it possible that those people back then, in their limited understanding of God, thought God was saying, as gruesome as it sounds, dash the heads of the babies against the rocks, and maybe they got God wrong? Maybe in the way they were talking themselves up for this war, they got God wrong. And they blamed God for something that they wanted to do. And that's why I follow Jesus. Because Jesus says, you know, there's a better way to live. You don't have to annihilate every person in the city. You can win them over. You can, you can bring them into my kingdom. It's a, it's a tough one to hear that not everything in the Bible is Christian. But it does help us when we come across some of these dreadful passages to say, well, maybe, maybe they are still growing in their understanding of God back then. And Jesus brings us a fuller, more healthy revelation of the will of God. Where does the God read? You know, it talks about the scripture being... Yes. So, so this passage in Timothy that says all scripture is God-breathed, is a complicated passage because when Timothy, when that passage was written, what scripture were they referring to? They didn't have the Bible. It's not the Bible like we had. Um, they probably were referring to the Old Testament, which was the only scripture that was written at that time, because the New Testament was still in the process. So, and possibly is saying, and I think this, that somehow the amazing thing is people having written these passages, God has taken them and moves our lives through them. That God chooses to use Scripture to speak to us in spite of the flaws of the people who lived during. And sometimes we have to, so, I mean, the well-known passage. King David looks over the wall at his neighbor's wife it's an appalling passage. You think, what the hell is this doing in the Bible? It's embarrassing. But maybe that's the point, that we learn from the mistakes as well. Just because there's the story of adultery in the Bible doesn't mean we must become adulterers. It's in the Bible. We then say we learn from it. We don't have to repeat it. That becomes the moment of inspiration, the moment of learning. And so I like Scripture because there's some stuff in Scripture that's warning, not permission. Rick, talk to me. I saw your hand, brother. The Bible says, the Bible's quite clear that men should not shave. It also says that you need to grow curls down, the, you must not shave the head, the side of your heads. By the way. I know it sounds silly. And that's why I'm saying we need to engage what are the essentials and discover some other things were culture, were part of the people of the day. Obviously, people with beards are more holy. They, they just clearly... Uh, 
you'd agree. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but some folks have got hung up on what I'd call the minor stuff. And so there are particular traditions that say, if a man, sh a man shaves, he has lost his spirituality. Sadly. Or if women cut their hair. Because there's a passage in the Bible that says women must have long hair because hair is the glory of the Lord. And so women with short hair have somehow lost God's glory. Sorry for you, Brenda. Um, I don't know what happened to you. Um, and, and so I'm coming back to... <laughs> is he talking to you, Corin? <laughs> so I'm coming back to the point. If there's a thread through Scripture, the thread is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit. Love your neighbor. And I think that becomes the lodestone against which you test everything. Test all your conversation. I hear that I hear that in Jesus over and over and over again, Jesus saying, Show compassion and love. I want to weep when I see Christians showing bitterness and anger and 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 I want to say, where's Jesus in this? I'm not pretending to know anything. But I am knowing, I am knowing that God wants us to love people rather than hate people. God wants us to be compassionate to people rather than condemn people. I'm clear on that. Because I need God's compassion and God's love in my life. So who am I to want to dish it out onto others? And at the same time say, but Lord, please be kind and loving to me. If there's nothing else... I, I, I will not budge from the idea that we are called to show love and not condemnation. And the thing that I grieve in the Methodist church is the way the church has become polarized to the point that people find it hard just to even sit down and be kind. But I'm seeing it kind of in, large, in our larger society as well. We've allowed ourselves to become polarized and, and mean. and uh, Just don't go to social media, guys. It'll rip you to pieces. <laughs> because people say the meanest things ever. Somehow there's an anonymity in sitting behind a computer screen. And you fire stuff at people that you probably wouldn't say to their face. But you dare to dump all over them. Let's not be those kind of people. So, so I'm not asking you to agree with me. I am going to present a point of view. But I will not budge from the idea that we need to be kind and compassionate. That is how Jesus saw the world. And there are some very unkind, uncompassionate passages in Scripture. I'm convinced Jesus would say, they got God wrong. I use the example. And so, an instruction that says, God says, smash the baby's heads against the rocks. I'd say, no, God doesn't say that. You, you thought God said that, but God is better than that. Yes. Nancy is offering some of the, the hope, I think, the good news. Um, I have a really nice short film clip that I'll show in two weeks' time that sketches a bit of the journey of 
the United Methodist Church. But the good news is the United Methodist Church has been through some really deep waters. The United Methodist Church split right down the middle on the issue of slavery, literally, passionately angry with each other, and yet managed to find each other. This church almost came to blows over the idea of women standing up and preaching. It was considered abomination. And there are quite clear passages in Scripture that say women should be silent. They just won't be silent, hey Rick? We, we try. <laughs> um, but Nancy's pointing to we can grow and we can hang on to each other if we're willing to be kind. If we're willing to make space for the fact that they're different points of view, we can grow. Um, and so there is good news in the history of this church, because this church has grown through some turbulence, desperate turbulence in the past. Desperate racist stuff that we'd look at now and say is appalling. But we grew and we got better. Desperate, misogynist stuff where men just thought they were superior to women, and we grew through that. I think we can grow through this as well, if we're willing to have the conversation. I'm, I do understand some people have made up their minds and they, and they are there and they're not going to budge. And I get it. I want to offer an alternate way of reading scripture and an alternate way of learning how to love people. So next week I will give you six texts, because there are only six texts in the Bible. Six texts that have been used as a foundation to the argument that gay people should be condemned. Um, and unpack them a little. Jen. Jenny has copied for me two things. Um, and I'm trying to be faithful to your tradition. I have a letter from a United Methodist pastor. Um, if you guys could just help Jen hand out. So there's a letter from a United Methodist pastor that I found helpful. So you might like to read that. And then I have my script for tonight. And uh, if, you'd, if you would like to read, you don't have to take it, but I just thought as a way of reference, there's stuff you can, can take with you. Um, I'm really open to ongoing discussion and engagement. Um, I drew on Walter Wink because he himself is a Methodist pastor and a Methodist teacher. I... I wanted to honor the United Methodist tradition. I could have brought stuff from my own church, but I felt it was more honoring to draw on your tradition so that you have something to work with. Um, so did you get... There's a letter from James McCormick. Everyone get a copy of that. And then there is the script of what I've used for tonight which you can take and can reflect on. James McCormick, everyone got this one? That's, that's the letter these guys have got.
So thank you for coming. Thank you for giving up a Sunday evening. Um, you are welcome to come back. You're welcome to decide, no, this is not for me, and that's cool. Um, I am just trying to make myself available to offer a conversation that you might have not heard as publicly as this. Thank you for being here. God bless. Go in peace. We can keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Pastor Pete. To get every episode delivered to you, subscribe to this podcast for free and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can always find information about our services and outreach on our website at brookingsmethodist.org and on our Facebook page, Brookings First United Methodist Church. On behalf of the pastors of Brookings First United Methodist Church, Thank you for listening, and see you next time. This podcast was produced by Sam Becker on behalf of First United Methodist Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Intro and outro music was performed by Ted DeLang under CCLI license number 936719, streaming plus license number 2103961. Visit brookingsmethodist.org for more information.